You're listening to a sermon from Sojourn East. And our scripture this morning comes from Exodus 4, 29 through 5, 2. And if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go, so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. If you're visiting with us today, my name is Kevin, and I have the honor of serving as the lead pastor here. And I want you to know we're really glad that you are with us this morning. We hope this service is an encouragement to you. It's life-giving to you as we gather to worship our great God. Before we get into the sermon, would you join me in prayer? Father, we know that you are with us, that you are always with us. We know that in our best moments and our worst moments that you are there. And I recognize in this room this morning there are people coming in with all sorts of things. Some people are distracted. I pray for those folks that you would settle their minds so they can hear your word. I pray for people who are discouraged or despondent, that you might surprise them with a sense of knowing where they are and a light that offers a way out. I pray for people who are stuck in patterns of sin or destructive behaviors. This morning would be a a time where your light shines on them as well and invites them to a better way. And I pray for people who are hungry. I pray that they would leave here filled with a greater understanding of who you are and what you're doing in our world. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Every year I try to get away on at least one backpacking trip with some friends. Usually we do a portion of the Appalachian Trail and these trips have become notorious for us always maybe biting off just a little more than we can chew and we never quite learn our lesson. Uh, Every time we're like next year, next time let's not make this mistake, but we always end up just planning maybe one or two too many miles, uh, too much incline in a single day. A few years ago, we were on a trip and we did about 12 miles in a day and it ended the last two miles. We're going up a mountain. And the, that day started off well. About six miles in though, we got hit in just a torrential downpour. Like, and it lasted for about an hour. It, was, it had to be like what Noah felt when you know, the rain started coming. It was one of those, oh man. And so we were soaked. And slowed us down and I had a GPS watch so I kind of knew where we were and we started up the mountain and then we just saw this set of switchbacks and in my mind I thought you know my calculations which proved to be wrong but I thought we've got about 30 minutes of doing these switchbacks and then we're going to be at the top of the mountain we're going to make dinner sit by the fire it's going to be amazing and so 30 minutes of doing these switchbacks and we finish and we get to the 30-minute mark, and we looked, and there's still a whole lot more switchbacks. And I'm like, all right, there's probably like 10 more minutes of these, and so 10 more minutes, 
and then another 10 minutes. And we started getting discouraged and more and more discouraged, started feeling like we had cinder blocks around our feet. And it ended up being about 90 more minutes before we finally reached the summit. And we were all demoralized. One of my friends, he wouldn't talk to us. He just set up camp, skipped dinner, and just went to bed like, I'll talk to you in the morning. And the funny thing about it is, if we would have known that it wasn't, you know, 30, it was actually two more hours, it wouldn't have been as bad. I mean, it still would have been brutal. We would have been wet and tired and everything else. But we had this expectation, 30 minutes and we're done. And then when it turned out, it was actually 90 minutes beyond that. That was what was so crushing for us. We had our expectation and then we had reality and the two didn't line up. And I say that because the longer I live, the more I think many, if not most of our greatest struggles in life come from unmet expectations. It's not that life is hard that we struggle with. It's that it's different than we expect it to be. And we have expectations about all sorts of things. We have expectations about our career and what job we're going to get and what that job is going to be like. We have expectations about relationships. If we're going to get married, and if we are, so many marriages, that's where they struggle. The expectations that you brought in crash upon the rocks of reality. We have expectations about parenting and uh, maybe assumptions we're going to have kids and then you struggle with infertility or you do have kids and you struggle with being a parent. And it goes all the way through life. You have expectations about what junior high or high school is going to be like or going to college is going to be like. And a lot of times it's when those expectations, they don't line up with reality. That's where we really struggle. And the cruel Reality is that the greater the expectation, the greater the disappointment. And so if, if you see a recipe online and you say, I'm going to make this for dinner tonight, and you, you go to make it and it's nothing like the picture and it doesn't taste great, you might be discouraged, disappointed that night, but you'll get over it. But if you set your hopes on going to a certain college and you don't get in, like that, that's more significant. If you set your hopes on a relationship and that relationship doesn't work out, it becomes even more significant. Maybe the most significant disappointments we face in life center around expectations we have about God. That we expect him to move in certain ways and to do certain things. We assume certain things. And when he doesn't live up to our expectations, it's where we can hit real profound seasons of doubt and crises of faith. The text we're looking at today, it's all about expectations. And it's about expectations that are put upon God. And if you're new or you're just jumping into this series with us, to get a little running start, God, uh, two chapters previously, he had met Moses at the burning bush. And he called Moses and said, listen, I recognize that my people, the Israelites, they're in slavery. I hear their cries. They'd been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And God says, I am about to do a new thing. I am going to stretch out my hand and deliver them. And Moses, I'm choosing you. Moses wasn't really excited about it. There was some haggling that went on. God gave Moses three 
powerful supernatural signs that would validate his testimony that he was from God. Moses complained that he shouldn't do it alone. God sent him with his brother. And so where we're picking up the text today is after the negotiations ended, Moses hears the call. He and his brother Aaron travel 200 miles to Egypt and they gather with the leaders of the tribes of the Israelites to tell them what God has said to them. They tell them everything, and then Moses, he performs the three miracles, the staff into the snake, the the leprous hand in and out of his cloak. And the Israelites, they hear, which you, you put yourself in their shoes. I mean, it's amazing. You've been waiting for God to move. And then Moses shows up. He says, I've heard. He's coming. Can we really trust you? Boom, throws a staff on the ground that turns into a snake. Okay, maybe this guy really is from God. They start to get very excited, and we read in verse 31, which Lindsay just read for us, that when they heard the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. This was a moment, this was a holy and sacred moment. God has finally heard, he is finally getting ready to act. The leaders together unified, thank you, God, you've heard from us. then in verse 1 of chapter 5, we're told that this service of worship and prayer ended. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Now, what's interesting and what's not easy to see if we're just jumping in right here is that that's actually not the message that the Lord gave to Moses. And I don't want to get lost in the semantics here, but the semantics really matter. You see, back in chapter 3, the Lord actually gave Moses a script of the exact things that he should say. It's in verse 18 of chapter 3, where God told Moses, you and the elders are going to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. What Moses did was very different. For starters, he didn't take the elders. We're told just Moses and Aaron went. He didn't bring the whole, all of the leadership of the community. Two, he refers to himself and his people as the Israelites, which was probably a name and a title that Pharaoh was not familiar with. He knew them as the Hebrews. And then the next thing we see is Moses just, he kind of defiantly demands, let my people go so we can go into the wilderness. Whereas God had told him, no, ask him to to let you go for three days to make sacrifices to me. You see, the Lord, he gave, <laughs> the Lord obviously recognizes this is a delicate situation and he gave very nuanced language to Moses. Moses threw it all out the window and we don't know why. Like maybe he was exuberant because they just had this awesome worship and prayer service and he was just had kind of that holy swagger of like, my God, you know, he sang the Hillsong songs and he was like, he is the victor and the conqueror. Pharaoh, you're about to listen. Maybe that's what's going on. Or maybe he was just really nervous. He told God that he didn't, he wasn't 
very good at speaking. And so maybe he'd rehearsed his lines over and over again. I don't know if you've ever done this, like, here's exactly what I'm going to say. And then he's put on the spot and he says all the things that he didn't want to say and doesn't say. We don't know. All we know is he came across to Pharaoh as being overconfident and rude and almost insulting. Because the pharaohs, the pharaohs were viewed as deities. And we know this was a new pharaoh who was just getting his feet under him. And so this request, it wasn't just insulting. It was almost like a test. Like if he gives in here, what's everyone else going to do? If they see that he bends on this thing, what else will he bend on? And so pharaoh responds, says, who is this Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. I, I do not think this is the response they expected. I think they expected Pharaoh to say, wait, you're from the Lord? I am so sorry. Yes, do whatever you want. Pharaoh's like, who do you think you are? Knocks them back on their heels, and in verse 3, they actually say what they should have said all along. They tone down their message. They become more deferential. Say, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Up to there, it's so far so good. But then Moses does this weird thing where he adds, he makes something up. He's like, or he may strike us with plagues in the sword. If you don't do this, God's going to kill us. And again, we don't know why he did this. Probably the same reason that all of us embellish stories and make things up from time to time that he's like trying to convince Pharaoh here. God never threatened to kill the Israelites. But Pharaoh, he's not having it. He sees Moses as being lazy and just that the Israelites are lazy. They're just trying to get out of work. And so in verse 6, we're told that in response, that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. And that's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make them work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. So Pharaoh, he's not having any of this. And there's something about the clay in that area to make bricks, you needed straw to hold it together. And I guess typically the straw would be delivered to the Israelites. But what Pharaoh says is, hey, we're, let's stop helping them out. They need to go gather the straw. And the straw wasn't like they could go harvest it out of the fields. It was really after the fields had been harvested, they would go and just kind of comb through the dirt trying to collect these scraps of straw. It wasn't necessarily hard work, but it was time-consuming. And the fact that Pharaoh didn't reduce the quota meant they had to do a whole lot more work to produce the same number of bricks, which they were not able to do. And as they lagged behind, we're told that the slave drivers began to beat them mercilessly. And after they experienced this, these beatings and the discouragement of all of this, we're told in verse 15 that the Israelite overseers, the same group that was with Moses earlier in worship and prayer, 
they went and appealed. That's an important word. They appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we're told to make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Now, you got to pay a little attention here because there are some really significant signs that the narrator includes in these two verses. The first is that word appealed. It's, it's a word that could be translated as to cry out in agony or anguish. The last time we saw that word in Exodus was in chapter 2 when we're told that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out, appealed to Yahweh for help. So at one point they were appealing to God, now they're appealing to Pharaoh. The second thing is they identify themselves not as the people of Yahweh, not as servants of the Most High. Instead, they identify themselves as servants of Pharaoh. They say over and over again, why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw. Your servants are beaten. It's not your servants' fault. These people who were worshiping and overfilled with joy are now on their knees begging and pleading with Pharaoh. And where we're going to stop, it's verse 20. We're told that when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. Moses and Aaron are like, all right, what did he say? Is he going to relent? And the people... They say some nasty things to Moses and Aaron. They say, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious. You've made us a stench in the nose of Pharaoh. And his officials have put a sword in their hands to kill us. People don't blame Pharaoh for their misery. They blame Moses and Aaron. And when you hold this series of events together, you start to see that what started off with such promise and hope of the people of God trusting the word of God, it ends in despair. It's, It's really a comedy or maybe better yet a tragedy of errors here. And you watch them happen. Moses bungles the message, which makes Pharaoh angry and turns up his cruelty towards the Israelites, who, which leads the Israelites to forsake the Lord, to curse Moses and Aaron, and to bow down before Pharaoh. And if you've been here the last few weeks, you read all this and you think, well, it sure seems like Moses' hesitancy and doubts and fears that he had that, hey, I don't know if this is the best plan. I don't know if they're actually going to listen to us. It seems like they were proven valid in this chapter except they weren't proven valid. And here's why. Because the Lord explicitly told Moses that this is how it was going to happen. On two separate occasions, God said, I'm going to deliver my people. You're going to go to Moses. And then in Exodus 3.19, he said, but when you go to him, he's not going to listen to you and he won't let you go. And then in chapter 4, the Lord told Moses, you're going to go to him and make these demands, but his heart is going to be hardened against you. God told him, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be a cakewalk out of Egypt. And we also know that Moses and Aaron 
They told the people at the end of chapter 4, the leaders of the Israelites, were told that they said, they communicated everything that the Lord said to them, which means they told them about the Lord's warnings. They all had been told, you're going to go, it's not going to be an easy journey, but God is going to deliver you. And yet, because of their enthusiasm, because of like their spiritual naivete, because, because of any number of reasons, they clung to the promises and they neglected the warnings. It's like they, they read the big good news part and they neglected the fine print. And they become bitter with Moses and Aaron and they lose hope, which is what we see when they bow down to Pharaoh. And there's this movement here. They start off with this kind of spiritual naivete of this is what God's going to do. Nothing can stop us. Like we've got, you know, the lion of Judah who has our back. It's going to be easy. And then it ends with like, who cares? Like, let's just see if we can get our quota reduced. There's no talk of them like, where's our deliverance? At the end, they're just like, can we not have to make quite so many bricks? And it was all rooted around these expectations they had. As I was reading this passage, I thought of a passage in John 16. John 16 is a part of the upper room discourse. It's when Jesus is with his disciples, and it's right before his arrest and crucifixion. And he's encouraging them. He's also warning them. He's telling them, preparing them. Hey, I know you've seen me do wonderful things. You've seen my power. You've heard my teachings and my prophecies and my promises. You've heard all that I've come to do. But I want you to know things are about to get pretty tough. I'm going to leave. I'm going away. And it's tough for me, but it's also going to be tough for you because you, in the days and weeks to come, you're going to be ostracized. You're going to get thrown out of the synagogues. You're going to get cut off relationally from people you've known for years. And some of you, he says, are even going to be put to death. So he, he gives those warnings. But then he says, but, but here's the really great news. Death isn't the end. On the other side of death, for my disciples, is life and joy everlasting. And then he ends... John 16, by telling the disciples, I have told you all of these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He says, I've told you all of these things so that you may have peace. And then he says, there's really, there's, there's bad news and there's good news. The bad news is in this world you will have trouble. The bad news is that just because you're a disciple of mine doesn't make you immune to the troubles of this world. The bad news is that precisely because you follow me, life is going to be more difficult. See, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere do we find the promise that a life with God will be a life of ease. And that notion that if you just believe in God, then this is going to happen and everything is going to get easier. I don't know where that comes from because it's not the scriptures, either the old or the new. Jesus says, that's the bad news. 
But then he says, but there's good news too. Take heart, I've overcome the world. I've overcome the prince of this world, Satan. I've overcome the powers of this world, sin and death. But you're still going to have to contend against them, but they're a defeated enemy. And the day, has come, the day is coming when I will wipe them out completely. But in the meanwhile, in the meantime, recognize you're going to have troubles. Now, thinking about Exodus, thinking about that passage, and thinking about us. Like, I think we all kind of tend towards one direction or another. I think some of us, we're the kind of people, the, half, the glass half full people, the, the eternal optimist. We like to just focus on the take heart, I've overcome the world. Like, and that's how we understand the life with God is, I worship a God who has overcome the world, which is true. It's just incomplete. And if that's all you focus on, you do become a bit spiritually naive. You think that your faith should give you an invincibility shield to the trials and sorrows of life. And what happens is when you find out you're not invincible, you start to wonder, did I do something wrong? Is there something wrong with me? Or is there something wrong with God? You struggle with doubt. You struggle with other people. You become disappointed. You become disillusioned when you find out that the world can be an ugly and brutal place. And what ends up happening is you do eventually cry out like Moses and the Israelites, where, where is God? He promised these things and he's not coming through. You know, and I, I recognize that there are a lot of reasons people struggle with faith these days. And I, I have sympathy for that struggled plenty in my walk with Christ. I, I don't want to dismiss or disparage the struggles. I do wonder, though, if part of the struggles in this particular moment have come because of this spiritual naivete, this kind of sense of, like, life with God should be good, all of our leaders should be trustworthy, things should go smoothly because we go to church on Sundays. Because for couple of decades, that kind of was a bit of the trajectory. Like, hey, we, life's good. We're good. Things kind of go the way we want. And then when we find out that life's hard, when a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic hits, when we see leaders stumble and fall, which should discourage us, but it shouldn't surprise us if we've read the Bible because it's filled with fallen leader after fallen leader. But I wonder if, if we've had years where we haven't had a whole lot of struggles and suffering, and then the trials do come, and we're like, what is this strange thing that's happening to me? It's because we didn't take seriously the warnings Jesus gave. It's because maybe we had unrealistic and unbiblical expectations. See, if you only focus on the take heart, you become spiritually naive. But if you only focus on the in this world, you will have trouble, that's not good either. Because then you become a spiritual cynic. You forsake the promises of God, the power of God, the presence of God in your life. You end up closing yourself off from others, from opportunities. You don't attempt great things for God because you don't expect great things from him. And you end up living like an orphan. That it's all on you to protect yourself, provide for yourself, you have to look out for number one because no one else is going to do it and all of that. 
Sadly, the journey is typically, just like with the Israelites, you start out spiritually naive, you know, you get sucked in the jaw by reality, and then it's like, now I'm never going back there. Now I'm going to be a cynic. Now it's fine, I'll just negotiate. Maybe I don't have to make quite as many bricks as I once did. You lose the promises and the power of God. You see, the key is you actually have to hold both of these things together. They're both true at the same time. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart, have overcome the world. If you go back to 1633, do you remember why Jesus told his disciples all these things? I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. He's saying peace is found when you can hold both of these things together. That the world's filled with troubles, that God doesn't move on the same timeline and same speed as we move, and that he's also overcome the world. And while horrible things can happen to us in this world, nothing happens to us that's outside of his control and nothing can separate us from the love that he has shown from us. Biblical wisdom, walking and wisdom and faith, it's learning to hold both of those together. And most of our struggles with faith and with God come because we lose our grip on one of the two. I wonder, I wonder, which are you more prone to? Like the spiritual naive, like, my God's in the heavens, he's going to make it all happen. Like, no matter what, he's going to come through and you, you kind of diminish your own suffering, the suffering of others. Or are you over here like, well, I know he said a lot of things, but life is really hard. Which one are you prone to? And if you don't know, ask a friend or a spouse. They can probably tell you pretty quickly. Like, hey, you, you, are, you definitely lean here. I would say with that, that probably speaks to some of our expectations, some of your expectations. It's not wrong to expect things from God. It's certainly not wrong to hold fast to his promises. We just must not be naive. We must read the fine print. We must pay attention to the writers he attaches to them. See, the Israelites, they focused so much on the promise. They were so certain God would move quickly and decisively that when he didn't, they just became angry and Moses became really depressed. In verse 22, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord? Why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Moses sounds almost like a child here. You broke your promise. You said you were going to do these things, and you didn't. And what I love about this section is the Lord, he's so kind to Moses. He doesn't say, really, me? Aren't you the one that bungled the message? Didn't I actually write down exactly what to say and you decided to fly off and just kind of wing it on your own? Weren't you the one who didn't recognize how sensitive this was, Moses? Didn't you completely? He doesn't do any of that. 
He sees Moses who is utterly discouraged and dejected. And he could have. But instead the Lord said to Moses, all right, now you're going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God doesn't rebuke Moses for his lack of faith. In a sense, there's a way you could read this where the Lord almost has this, like, the slightest of grin. Like, oh, Pharaoh thinks he's tougher now than he's ever been. And you're more discouraged than you've ever... Oh, this is the kind of moment that I love to step into. That's where we're stopping for today. It's like dot, 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 to be continued. But the word I want to leave you with is this. So many of our missteps come because we either, we either ignore the warnings, we ignore the promises, we don't hold them both together. And we, when we do that, we go wrong in all sorts of ways. We lack faith, or we lack wisdom, we lack compassion, we lack courage, you name it. But I love how this passage ends because it, it shows us that even when we get it wrong, even when our obedience is half-hearted, even when we get to the place of despair, like the Israelites, God didn't say, they've given up on me this quick. God doesn't give up on them. And the warning, or not the warning, the encouragement here, we see it in Moses, and it's the invitation to us. We see it in the disciples, is that you can bring your failings and your missteps and your mistakes to God. That you don't have to cover them up. You don't have to act like they don't exist. You don't have to deny them. You can actually bring them to him as you have them. And our God is abounding in grace and mercy. You can bring your lack of faith to him. And he's not going to cast you aside. You know, as Lindsay mentioned, it's the first Sunday of the month, which means it's time for elder prayer. And our pastors are available to pray with you after the service in the back of the auditorium. And we want to pray with you for whatever you have going on. For some of you, maybe you have health conditions that you need prayer for. Uh, treatments coming up, surgeries. We would love to pray for you there. For others of you, it's a spiritual matter. You have unconfessed sin in your life that you want to confess. Or maybe God's felt really far for a really long time. Maybe you're struggling with doubt. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through, we want to pray for you and we're not going to judge you because we know that we are not judged by Christ. We are saved by him. Thanks for listening. For more information about our church, visit sojourneast.com.